This episode is brought to you by the all-new NAD M10 V2, featuring a size-defying and conservatively rated 100 watts per channel of amplification. The M10 V2 sets a new standard in audio. Welcome back, everybody, to another fun-packed episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. And joining me for yet another round is Twittering Machines is Michael Lavonia. Welcome again, Michael. Uh, good to be back for more. Yeah, you're a victim. I guess a glutton for punishment, right? You're a, I was going to say you're a victim, but I guess you are in many ways. You're a guest and a victim. Yes, a willing participant. A, a willing participant. kick me on my back, yes. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about value perception at the very high end, so the expensive gear. But before we get to that, I want to talk about a product that I actually purchased recently um, because a, a bunch of my, well, about three people on Patreon pinged me via the private messaging thing saying, are you going to take a look at this app? And it is the Audiolab 6000A Play integrated amplifier with DAC and Streamer built in, ah. right? Mm. And this sells for a thousand euros. And it really is, <laughs> to use an old football cliche from way back when, it really is a game of two halves. It's, it's mm. heaven and hell. And mm. I'll, I'll talk about the heaven part first of all, right? Mm. Because, you know, you pull it out of the box and it feels very solid. It's very weighty. It's a class AB amp, so it's got a big toroidal inside. Mm. But its its casework is very much not agricultural. It's really nicely made. There's a tiny little OLED display on the front. There are three knobs, and they they have good a good feel to them. They feel very solid. The whole thing feels really solid, well made. The, the, yeah, the knobs feel very reassuring when you turn them. Mm. And one is a source selector. One's a volume control. But the third one is quite unusual because it allows you to switch the amp's operational mode from a preamp to a power amp to an integrated, hmm. right? Okay, so yeah. It's pretty versatile. It's very well thought out, I think. Uh, it's got a DAC inside, which I think is an ESS Sabre 9018K2M, so like the mobile thing. But obviously that doesn't tell us everything about the DAC inside. Mm -hmm. And then on the back, we've got two coax inputs, two TOS link, and a there is a Bluetooth um, streaming input as well. But you, I think you've mentioned this recently, Michael, about the sort of the disappearance of USB. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it seems to be the case. It's, it's almost become uh, difficult to find a streamer that offers USB out. Mm. So this has no USB in to access the DAC, which, I, I mean, it doesn't make any difference to me because you just find a, a streamer that it has the right connectivity, right? it has the corresponding connectivity to the amp. But I thought it was interesting that this amplifier mm. with a built-in DAC does not have a USB input. But what's really amazing about this thing is it's just—it's such a joy to use. It feels—it just feels extremely well made and very well thought out. And sound-wise, I—I don't often go in for hyperbole, and I'm not. Well, this is not really hyperbole, but it, this thing, even though it's a, a grand, it can, in some ways, play at the same level as two amps I've reviewed recently, namely the Cambridge Audio Evo 150 and the name Unity Atom. 
mm-hmm. that it's very detailed, it's very transparent, and it's extremely ballsy. It's you know, it's a, it's got good dynamics. It's strong. It's a bit like that um, the NAD C three one six BEE V two that I keep crapping on about. But you know, it's <laughs> such a mouthful. That's another friendly uh, product name. <laughs> yeah, but. But it's it's got the dynamics of that amp, but it's also got better clarity, better detail retrieval. The one thing that separates it, mm. where it comes up short against things like the name in the Cambridge that I've just mentioned, is on handling the sort of the, the finer details, the subtleties. I think the name and the Cambridge are slightly better at that. But mm. given that the Audio Lab sells for a grand, it's like wow, this thing is really pretty damn good. And I was surprised. I kind of I was really taken aback by how good this thing sounds yeah what are just uh, what are the prices of the cambridge and the uh, nad roughly you know? so the cambridge i think is about 2500 euros yeah okay and the name is three thousand, i think oh so yeah multiples uh, of yeah right i mean it competes with products nearly two or three times its price oh but the, you said it <laughs> i said it but it, the thing is <laughs> i've actually specified the products rather than just kind of Yes, throwing it out there just to keep the manufacturer happy. I really mean it. I think this thing is this thing really does punch way above its weight. Yes, it punches <laughs> above its weight. Yeah, to use <laughs> I guess people will also want to know it's got a really good MM phono stage inside. I've had it hooked up to my technical oh, table. Nice. Um, it delivers fifty watts per channel, mm-hmm. and it really does. It's it, it's as ballsy as the name is. You know, people often say that name watts you know, are more uh, potent than normal <laughs> solid-state amplifier watts. I know this is something I've heard years ago. But this mm. thing is, you know, kind of like that. Like, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a punchy, exciting, gutsy-sounding amplifier, and I, I think it's wonderful in that respect. Mm-hmm. However, there is a but, and the but is a big but. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess this is like the, the hell part of this equation. Because this amplifier is like the streaming version of another amplifier. So Audio Lab make the 6000A, which is just the amp with the DAC inside and the phono stage. I've got the play version, which is with the streamer inside as well. And it's got an Ethernet input on the back. And you want to ah. use that because it's got three, three Wi-Fi aerials. And when you stick them up, it looks like one of those Asus routers from about, from about 10 years ago, you know, like the, the things that will stick out. So oh, yeah. <laughs> it does not look good with those. You want to use the mm. uh, Ethernet there. But it does not have rune ready. Now, normally, yeah. when something doesn't, isn't rune ready, I kind of go, okay, no worries. I'll use the AirPlay input and just stream to that. But there's no AirPlay either. <laughs> so then normally I kind of go, okay, well, there's no AirPlay. I'll use the Chromecast input to stream rune. Mm. But there's no Chromecast either. There is only two Ouch. things. Hmm. There's only Spotify Connect and something called PlayFi, which is made by DTS. Hmm. And I guess even out of the gate, I was a little bit annoyed because I'm thinking, I'm just going to play some Spotify. So I turn the amp on, turn it to its PlayFi or its streaming input, and try and pull up Spotify and punch something in. And it, it just it didn't show up on my network. And it turns out you have to download the PlayFi app and set up a Spotify zone, which I think then does something inside the software, inside the amp, and then then it then Spotify has been activated, right? Oy. Okay. So it's like, okay, that's not great, but all right. And once it's activated, it, it pretty much runs 
keeps running. And the thing I like, well, there's two things I really like about Spotify Connect. Number one, it's it does not stream from the phone. So when you nominate the Audio Lab as the endpoint, the Audio Lab then pulls the stream down from the cloud directly, mm. and your phone is just a glorified remote control, right? Right. right. Yeah. Which is the same as Chromecast, the same as Rune, the same as Tidal Connect as well. So most things operate that way, apart from AirPlay. AirPlay doesn't, the stream travels through the phone on AirPlay, mm -hmm. right? The other thing I like about Spotify Connect um, is that it's gapless. It plays mm, yeah. albums back gaplessly. It doesn't put artificial slices of silence between tracks like Chromecast does. Mm. So, you know, I can forgive Chromecast a little bit because generally you find Chromecast on a device that has a lot of other sort of streaming inputs like AirPlay and Rune. And it's, for me, it's just good for streaming SoundCloud, which doesn't rely on gapless playback. But personally, okay. <laughs> I would never use Chromecast. I mean, you've, you've used Chromecast on the NAD amp that you, you yeah. had a while back, right? I did. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a while. It wasn't, it wasn't my favorite setup process, but outside yeah, you have of to that, use the Google thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah you do. Yeah. It's, it's these, I guess I'm just spoiled with Rune, to be frank. Well, that's, I mean, that's a good point, isn't it? I mean, basically, the other streaming platforms available to us sort of lay down the sort of gold standard, if you like, or the standard by which we judge other things, right? Yes. And that brings me nicely to PlayFi itself. Hmm. Now, the app is quite nice. It's pretty good. But if you want to stream Tidal or Kobos, you have to use this app. So there's no Tidal Connect. You have to use this app. Mm. And what you do is you, you know, you fire at PlayFire and then you click this big plus button in the middle of the screen and it takes you to some options where you can stream Kobos, uh, Tidal, Amazon Music, and a whole bunch of others. But I think Kobos and Tidal and maybe Amazon are what people are into because they offer lossless streaming. There's no Apple, uh, Apple Music because obviously only Sonos does that. But mm. anyway, so you, I, I, I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to play something. I played some Robin Hitchcock. Um, from Tidal through PlayFi, and it sounded okay. absolutely fantastic. It really mm. did. I was like, wow, mm. this is something else. Mm. But then I punched in like a, a fabric mix um, from, from Tidal. It's Nina Kravitz's fabric mix. So it's a continuous DJ mix, right? Okay. And I'll come to that, that bit in a moment, but I wanted to see where the stream was being routed. So I put my phone into airplane mode, and sure enough, the music stopped. So that told oh. me that the stream from Tidal was coming to my phone through the PlayFi app and then going off to the Audio Lab streaming amplifier, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, yep. this is not good. So I re-engaged or sorry, disengaged airplane mode. Same Nina Kravitz album again. This time what I did is I decided just to kind of close the app. And I don't mean just minimize. I mean, like, do that thing where you can kill the app yeah. It was actually on an iPhone, so you can just like just drag up from the bottom left corner until you see the the, the, the row of apps and just kill it that way. And again, mm -hmm. the music stopped. But the irritating thing with PlayFi is that, <laughs> or the other irritating thing, is that it doesn't take you back to where you once were. So you you know once you've closed the PlayFi app and reopen it, it didn't remember that I was playing to playing Nina Kravitz's wow. okay. 
fabric mix, right? So you have to go and go into title, search it again, and punch it in again, right? Yeah. But okay. well, it doesn't come back to where you were, which is very retro. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit, yeah. To the bad old days of uh, yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's not it's not ideal, but it's not a big deal breaker but what comes next for me for me personal opinion here this absolutely is so when you're streaming anything from basically from any service through the playfy app so this is not spotify connect to exclude right. that that's out right. on its own doing its own thing right but if you stream title through the playfy app or kobos through the playfy app or amazon music through the playfy app playfy inserts gaps between the tracks, <laughs> oh, right? So it's not gapless. Mm. So, but it, it's not like not gapless, like Chromecast is not gapless where there's like a little bit of a jump. There is a yawning chasm between these tracks. And I counted it and I timed it. It's a full five seconds. Oh, five <laughs> seconds between tracks. <laughs> so that means basically all DJ mixes like that Nina Kravitz fabric oh. mix are off the table. Right. Yeah. Because you, you, the whole point of those is the sort of the flow, the rhythmic flow, like that takes you through seamless bend from one track to the other. And I guess you know it. It also affects live albums. It affects Much classical class, releases. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I actually asked my patrons for like a list of albums that they thought, you know, depended upon gapless playback and the things mm. like the Orb. Cream Live, Quadrophenia, Dark Side mm. of the Moon, Depeche Mode's Violator. I'm sort of looking at them right now. Yes, Close to the Edge, DJ Shadows Introducing, uh, mm -hmm. some Mike Oldfield, Daft Punk's Alive 2007. Absolutely, that needs gapless playback. Like it, I, I just I find it baffling that even sort of 20 or so years after gapped playback first reared its head <laughs> in a major way with the original iPod, because that mm. was not gapless when it first came out. You know, we, if, I feel like we've, we went backwards and we, in some quarters, like DTS's PlayFi, we've not, we've not corrected for that. Yeah, but, which is, I don't know, that, it's troublesome to me. I, mm. You know, that would irritate me to no end because, you know, if given time, that list of albums that really require gapless playback would grow and grow and grow. Mm-hmm. You know, or you could just get a device like this Audio Lab and be constantly annoyed by <laughs> being yeah. reintroduced to how important gapless playback is. But I think it's also the fact that Ugh, it's a yeah. five-second gap. Yeah, and that's crazy. So this also affects, to my mind, albums that are ordinarily gapped. So like where the artist has chosen to put small half to one-second gaps mm. between tracks, because those... 0.5 second gaps are now five seconds. They're now 10 times the size. <laughs> I'm like, so I was listening to Talking Heads' Little Creatures, right? And I've been playing this album since 1985. I know hmm. this. It's like part of me. It's part of my DNA. So I know when to expect the next track as one of the previous finishes, right? But because I think Playfire is running this sort of single, what's called a single threaded streaming process inside the streamer, it has to stop playing the the previous track before it can start to buffer the next track right because yeah buffer so it. all right which i think is why it's five you know five seconds and for me five seconds actually spoils talking heads as little creatures as well like mm -hmm. even gapped albums where the you know how sometimes <laughs> a song finishes and then it goes straight into the next one 
And that sort of, that lack of a big pause is pivotal, pivotal to the listening experience. That's out the window with DTS PlayFi. Yeah. And yeah, it's almost like they're designing a device to play tracks and not albums. Right. So if you're just a track guy who just likes to play playlists, you mm. might be okay with this. Yeah. So this is why I say it's just a me opinion, because I realize that well, I'm not everybody and people might just go, well, I don't care, John, I just play tracks. Fair right. But how, yeah, but uh, I mean, it is... It's a bit. It's a step beyond that because this is just um, software that's not performing properly. It's inserting silences into uh, albums that don't exist. I mean, they're they're actually changing the experience of listening to an album, and that because I, I would have to assume it's it's these are cost factors. You know, they're going with PlayFi and not using Rune. That cost factor. They're not using more. You know. Uh, processor intensive mm. uh you know streaming modules in there because it would it'd be more expensive to do so so yeah the fact that it can't buffer you know an album's worth you know i would i'm assuming that this is related to the cost of essentially computing hardware in, inside the box or the I, don't, I don't know i mean i i can't yeah. speak to why audio lab decided to go with playfi and not say even chromecast or airplay or mm. or even rune ready like one of those i, I don't know i can't right. speak to that but what i yeah what does frustrate me is that cds were gapless so was vinyl so were cassette tapes like every other format in the history of musical <laughs> right. formats was gapless right yeah. because even when there are gaps between tracks they were mandated by the artist right the artist sure. decided okay we want gaps between these tracks or we want them to blend or you know they make that call and for software to make that call on their behalf and our behalf, I just think is it's not as the artist intended to use the sort of modern vernacular, right? And yes, it, it does feel like a, a huge step backwards. And the reason that I'm talking about mm. this today is because I have seen recent coverage of this amplifier that did not mention any of this. Wow! And I think yeah. if you're mm. buying this and you're thinking, "Oh, well, I'm going to stream." You need to know the size of the gaps between tracks, and you need to know that the stream travels through the phone because they are important factors in a buying decision, right? Yes, for sure. They are for me. Right. Yeah, yeah it rules it out for me. But also, yeah, and yes. <laughs> well, here's the thing. See, I never give buying advice. I don't say you should buy this, we should never, you shouldn't buy this. Mm. But in this particular case, I'm going to make an exception because I would say to people, if gapless, playback is important to you do not buy this audio lab 6000a play you mm -hmm. can actually go and buy the standard 6000a you can save 250 bucks because that's what the PlayFi module is costing you okay. save that money and, and put it into a different kind of streamer and connect that to the back of the 6000a which also has a DAC inside you know using coaxial or toslink and do it that way and then yeah, yeah whatever yeah. your streamer has hopefully it's either room ready has airplay has Chromecast, even though that's not gapless, it's there's tiny gaps there. But you know, I guess that's the other thing that kind of irks mm. me a little bit about the PlayFi solution is that we're not given other options. We're not, you know, there is no other AirPlay or Chromecast to kind of cut over to because we don't like what PlayFi does. Mm -hmm. we're, we're just stuck with that. And to be honest, with this unit I have, I would only ever use it for Spotify Connect only. I, I, I right. can't, I can't listen to anything through the PlayFi app. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm, I'm okay with Spotify Connect. I use it all the time. And I guess when they eventually launch their lossless streaming service, as long as you know the code on the device is lossless compliant, then mm-hmm. happy days. Like That's a good thing, but it's a big if. So I think paying €250 Euros for this streaming module, it's not great value for money. Yeah, and, I would agree. Thing, but I think it's also a little, little bit of an IAG thing. IAG is the company that owns uh, Audio Lab big conglomerate in Asia. And I know that PlayFi also exists in a quad amp in a similar fashion. There's one with PlayFi and one without. Mm. Uh, I think Macintosh make a product with PlayFi in it. Um, mm. I, I got to say, I'm not a fan. And I'm, I'm trying to be really diplomatic about <laughs> my opinion here, even though it, I don't know, maybe I'm, I am being a bit, am I being too harsh on this thing? I don't know. Well, I mean, that's t- t- I don't think so, but that's just me. I mean, I, mm. I really don't. I have a very difficult time with uh, with technology that takes a few steps backwards. Mm. You know, and that's that's just that. I mean, it's, especially it's, when the gaps are five five seconds. That's yeah, an that's, eternity, right? <laughs> it's just. Boy. You would have to think something's not working properly. I'd think the first time you encounter it. Especially it, if you've read a review and it doesn't mention it. And then you get a unit home and it's like, wait a minute. Oh, this is mm. not working or, you know, should I punch the side of it a little? <laughs> it's definitely not faulty. Through. I know it's not faulty because I know that I, Phil, mm. who, you know, writes for me as well in the UK, had the quad amp and had the same issue. And this, yeah. but this is my first, I'm never going to comment on something unless I've had direct experience with it. And now I have had direct experience with PlayFi and now mm. I'm commenting on it. And I know that Chris Conacher over Audio File Style has written mm-hmm. a similar piece about how it's, you know, it's fairly fundamentally flawed in yeah. the same ways that I've just described, you know, like it's, you know, the stream travels through the phone and there's five second gaps. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no spinning that. This is not like, that's not my opinion. Like right. there are five second gaps and the stream does travel through the phone. So it's not like, mm-hmm. I'm, maybe I'm not being harsh. Maybe I'm just saying, well, these are the facts, ma'am. And I don't like them facts. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, this isn't some kind of subjective, you know, thing. You're just presenting how this thing operates and it's right. up to the potential buyer to determine if that's a problem or not. Mm. But uh, I yeah. guess I'm, but, I'm extra mm. frustrated because it's such a great sounding amplifier. Like whoever designed the audio lab amplifier component did an amazing job. It's wonderful. And I, I would thoroughly recommend it, you know, on that, which is why I say go and get the 6000A without the play and get it for 750 you've got a great amp for that it's absolutely superb yeah and then yeah, you, you know can, i've yeah. Uh, yeah i've i've voiced an opinion uh, on a number of occasions that you know i'm in favor of this uh uh all in one components you know definitely yes yes um but uh, you know i i'm going to have to i'm starting to walk that back in my head not completely mm. but in instances like this, I think you've given a very good uh, argument for why the all 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 in one with streaming isn't the best option. And I think that you know that uh, is going to be the case going forward. I mean, so again, so you know some companies and some implementations are just going to be better than others. Mm. And so you know, with the caveat, the all in one. But I think the standard of streaming 
technology now is very, very high. I mean, if, if this was the only streaming platform available, DTS Playfire was the only thing on the planet, I'd be like, wow, this is amazing. Like, to hell with the five-second gaps, whatever. Mm. But it's not. Uh, we've got Rune and we've, we've got Airplay, which I'm not a huge fan of, but Spotify Connect, Tidal Connect. Tidal Connect, yeah. Right? They, yeah. they don't stream for the phone. They are gapless. They're, they're fantastic. And I think the bar is much higher now than it was even five years ago, mainly oh, because sure. of Rune, right? So Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just I think... I think DTS are being left behind a little bit with this. I know they've been promising gapless for some time, but it's still not there. So, yeah, it's, it, it is frustrating, but that's, I guess that's the way, the way it is, really. I mean, there's nothing we can do about it, but apart yeah, from the fact it, now I'm stuck with an amplifier that <laughs> I've got to... Well, see, here's the thing. I've got to give it away to my Patreon guys, right? Patreon people. Yeah. And I yeah. feel bad because I'm going to stick them with this, this Playfire module, but hopefully <laughs> they'll just use the DAC and not use that. Or maybe they want the, it'll be somebody who doesn't care about five-second gaps between tracks. Maybe it's, it'll be one or of those. Or somebody people. that might, yeah, might just be, you know what, Spotify and the turntable's good. Yeah, you know, or somebody for... like, or like that, yes. But that's mm. the thing, isn't it, is that, you know, you're talking about your, your point about all-in-ones, is that in order for them to not fall by the wayside quickly, or you know, get left behind is they need to option many different technologies. Like, um, I guess like Blue OS does with mm. Spotify Connect, Tidal Connect. It's got its own app with all the other things. It's Rune ready. It's got two-way Bluetooth, which is just insane as far as I'm concerned, which is great. So mm. they've got a lot of bases covered. And I think you know, if you are going to make an all-in-one now, like the name guys, they have Rune ready. Oh yeah, AirPlay's in the Blue OS and AirPlay is also in the name. And then you've got Tidal Connect, Chromecast. And there's a similar sort of set of streaming options in the Cambridge amp as well. Mm -hmm. So I think those amps will do okay in, into the future because even if one falls off, you know, there's still three or four to kind of to use. Yeah. Well, on the on the Blue OS side, and specifically the NAD and Blue Sound mm. products, many of them are modular. So in addition to firmware upgrades to the Blue OS software that will add features if there comes a time when the hardware module can't handle, let's just, you know, let's say new features, um, mm -hmm. there is this option going forward of just sticking slot, literally plugging in and playing a, with a new Blue OS module, streaming module, let's mm -hmm. say, you mm -hmm. know, so which is a very nice uh, solution. Of course, we're talking about, you know, Blue Sound is, is building everything. You know, they're responsible mm -hmm. for, the, for Blue OS and for the hardware. For, so it's not the case, obviously, with AudioLab using PlayFi. It's mm -hmm. not theirs to do with what they want. You know, it kind of reminds me of the early days of uh, when, you know, streamers were just coming out and a lot of companies went with, third-party streaming solutions, plug-in, mm. you know, uh, plug-in solutions from like Stream Unlimited. And mm -hmm. in the early days, you know, you would see, you know, it, a number of products across different manufacturers not supporting what you would think would be some obvious features, but they were all using like the Stream Unlimited board, mm. which hadn't gotten around to, you know, adopting whatever it was at the time. Right. So it's, it's that kind of odd, like, you know, why am I missing out on things that should, 
you know, just be a given like gapless playback, but it's, yeah, it's these third party dependencies, I guess. Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, for the last 10 years, I mean, I've been crapping on about gapless for a long time. Yeah. It's, it's a deal breaker for me every time I, I would happily take a little bit of a hit to sound quality to have gapless implemented. Okay. Yeah. So that's a question. Yeah. So like, would you, would you, let's stick with the audio lab. So would you Mm. then say, I mean, you know, in this hypothetical world, it's like, you know what, I'm just going to stick with uh, Spotify uh, and forget about title or because I need to have gapless playback. Mm. Well, yeah, here's the rub though. It's actually, and this is one thing I did notice last night was going between title and Spotify was that on this amplifier, there is a, a strong difference between Tidal, sound quality-wise, oh. and Spotify. Like, Tidal does sound really, really good. Hmm. And Spotify, not so much. Like, and, and the difference is probably is, is not as big as I've, I've heard it, but as stark. Yeah, the, the difference is as stark as I've heard it in a long time. Hmm. Um, maybe it was because I was just bouncing backwards and forwards, which I don't often do between those two particular streaming services. So, yeah, okay. Mm. But it, but I would. I would absolutely take a hit to sound quality to have gapless because it's more important that the, I can play all you know, the live albums that I like and the DJ mixes and also just the albums that, where all the tracks are blended together by the artist. And there yeah. are tons of those. Why yeah. would I suffer the, <laughs> the ignominy of five seconds of silence between two tracks? It's just like it, it takes you out of the... The, the hypnosis of music, right? Because yeah, absolutely. The story. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. There are Hendrix albums, you know, where that's where gapless is essential because the mm. song, the, from song to song, they, we, they weave into one another. They kind of like introduce the next song in a way, you know, cause there's a story being told an album right. length story. So yeah, it's I mean, not it's, for it's, me. I'm not yeah. a fan of jazz, but so I don't know, but like is a jazz records the same. I would imagine they are. Well, you know, it's yeah. yes, they they are. Which remi- reminds me of you know this funny story. It was Pharaoh Sanders, I believe. It was the first record he was going to put out on the Impulse label under his uh, as as a leader. Mm. And it was two it was two sides of music, no tracks. And I think it was the the record producer said, "You know, look, Pharaoh, if you split these into tracks." you'll make more money it, how, you know however the compensation scheme went with mm. the contract it was track based in part so if you release a, a record that was just two side long <laughs> you wouldn't get as much money as if uh-huh. you just put little little caps in between <laughs> so anyway yeah but yeah, yeah. That, like, so yeah like, yeah a lot of coltrane especially when you get into the free jazz yeah things just keep tend to not uh, they tend to flow. From, yeah, right. From one to another. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's unfortunate that Audio Lab have gone with PlayFi uh, mm. for the whatever reasons they have. I, I guess mm-hmm. they're in a contractual arrangement, so I can't comment on that. Yeah. But um, yeah, my my call is like, don't buy the Play version. Get mm. the standard version because it's a great, great amplifier. Yeah. Can we move on? Because I, I believe, Michael, you've just come back from Capital Audio Fest in Rockville, Maryland, which actually reminds me of an REM song, Don't Go Back to Rockville. <laughs> yes, indeed. And I just, I just feel and you like you went I, back to Rockville. <laughs> I went, yes, back to Rockville. So how was it? I mean, did you, what, what, 
tell us what you saw that you thought was interesting or cool or new or ah well the first i would say it was a great show Mm -hmm. uh regardless of the times it was well attended i don't have numbers uh however especially on saturday the majority of rooms once the day got going uh Mm. were full or near full I mean, there were a number of rooms I had to come back to because I couldn't get in the door. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was, it was a very healthy crowd and the mood in general exhibitors and attendees was just super high. Mm-hmm. You know, people were just very happy to be in the community again in person. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was a great show. And, uh, yeah, there was a lot to. There was certainly a lot to see, a lot to take in. I heard there were, let's say, around fifty uh, rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I'll say this. It's funny because I haven't written it in my in my show report. Um, and now I'm I'm re- recognizing that I <laughs> I need to add this in. Mm-hmm. But uh, one thing that did stand out. It's it seems to me that. You know, it's like the return of, or perhaps the uh, the the year of the reclocker. I've I saw more really? reclockers in huh. use, and and more people talking about the importance of an external reclocker at this show than ever before. Hmm. You know, all price ranges. Um, it just struck me as interesting, and I, I, I there was an attendee who who came up and introduced himself, and he's a very happy owner. Of a total deck. Okay. Yeah. And he was uh, blaming that uh, on me, <laughs> at least the purchase price. Anyway, um, he uses, he's got the top of the line total deck, and he uses two total deck reclockers in line. Huh. He started with one, he added another, and he's very happy with two. Wow. And I'm just throwing this out there. I don't, uh, I'll be getting in, uh, in the near future, one of the decks with an external uh, reclocker. I saw at the show in the 3500 for the DAC and 3800 for the reclocker. Uh, that's what's, the price. What's the brand? Ideon. Okay. Which is an interesting company. They're based in Athens, Greece. Mm-hmm. They have been around uh, for a while, but completely under my radar. Uh, mm. I'm not sure of the distribution in, in the U.S. situation. Uh, they are now distributed by Audio Skies out of uh, L.A. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also I th- they premiered the flagship DAC in a in a they were in two rooms, uh, the flagship DAC and the flagship flagship stack, mm. which is a, a streamer and a reclocker, uh, roughly seventy some grand for the stack. That was uh, uh, in a separate room in the title room. Mm-hmm. But this um, entry for that for that line, the entry three thousand dollar thirty five hundred actually for the deck and reclocker. I was I was very interested, very intrigued by it. So those will be headed to the barn soon. When you say reclocker, do you mean spidiff reclocker or USB to spidiff? No, not a not a just a. Uh, just a reclocker. Well, let's just say, I mean, depending, you know, not, I can't talk about every reclocker that was at the show, but I really shouldn't even speak out of turn because, mm. you know, I haven't done a boatload of research even on the Ideon 
pre-clocker that's coming in. It's not an external clock then, is it? Like the signal comes through the re-clocker, right? The audio signal. Yes. So it comes in as spit, you know, enters the re-clocker as spinoff and leaves as spinoff, for example. Yes. Yeah. Right, but it's re-clocked inside before then, and then the spinoff output is connected to a DAC. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, that's interesting because I didn't didn't know they were sort of popular again. But it's good to hear people talking about um, the importance of digital source quality. People, you know, other than us. <laughs> so. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Oh, and also on on that kind of unusual theme, because mm. that struck me as an unusual theme, so unusual that I neglected to mention it in my own show report. Um, the other uh, was any number of companies talking about the inherent superiority of linear power supplies and big, huh. beefy uh, tor- toro- sorry, toroidals. Yes, <laughs> toroidals. Easy yeah, even say. in DACs, even like mm. little DACs with huge power supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, My for instance, the the latest reincarnation of the Liberty DAC now has, you know, a big honking transformer in it. Ah, uh, yeah, because maybe before it was an Arcor transformer, and now it's a Toroidal. Yeah, I'll just say. Or yes. maybe it was a switch mode sure. power supply. I, yeah, I, guess I believe bit... it was switch mode in the okay. case of My Yeah, and it's just. Uh, and speaking to Michal from from my tech at the show, mm. it was just, it was one of those no brainer uh, comparisons. You know, it's clearly superior. And and again, we're getting back to this notion of uh, lo- reducing the noise floor internally, mm. uh, which comes with clear sonic benefits. So anyway, that was kind of you know two interesting little uh, kind of off the wall. See, I guess. Because uh, I've never been to Capital Audio Fest, but my mm. experience with American, well, regional American shows like Capital, like Rocky Mountain, I've never been to Axpiner, but I've been also the, um, I never know how to say that this, the show, the home entertainment show, the thing out in California in June. Yeah, um, the show. I, I always felt that they were very much skewed, I guess like Munich in many ways, really, skewed towards high-end gear. Like, And when I say high-end, I mean like, you know, 20 grand amps, 100 grand speakers, things like that, which isn't really my usual path. But I, I do take an interest in what goes on, obviously, because it's you know, yeah, well, the bigger picture. But I would say, <coughs> excuse me, I would say capital is the exception, especially in previous years when there were more exhibitors. Mm. Um, again, rough numbers, I believe. You know, this show, let's say it was 50 exhibitors. In previous years, I think that number was more like 70, perhaps even a little higher. And it seems to me that uh, a lot of the companies missing this year were these smaller companies, you know, mm. for more, let's just say, uh, affordable products. There were right. many rooms with what I would consider to be expensive systems. Really? You know, uh, tens of thousands, if not six-figure systems and mm. up, and up, and up, and up, and up. Yeah. I, I mean, going by what I read online from a lot of very vocal people, obviously those rooms would be completely empty because there's obviously clearly no market for a $100,000 speaker or a 50 grand DAC, right? Well, that wasn't the case for me anyway. Mm. 
Um, and it's funny because some, uh, you know, some of these rooms for me were a bit sneaky in that I'll, I'll use one example. So overture is a, a Metro DC area dealer. Mm -hmm. Um, they had two rooms, one of them featuring amplification from rogue audio, which Mm -hmm. if you know the company, they are, if nothing else, um, reasonably priced i would have to i would use that word mm-hmm. built in pa mm-hmm. um, and for example the one room uh, had their stereo 100 amplifier um and that is uh, 4700 dollars round numbers mm-hmm. you know which in the grand scheme of things these days is uh, <laughs> really uh, i have to say it, it's getting on the affordable side of things but in any event that room uh Overture, I have to applaud them. They not only did they hand out price sheets detailing every single thing in the room, but they mm. also on the bottom gave you the total. So the total system cost for the the Rogue room, which also had BMW, the new BMW 804D four mm. speakers, was seventy three grand. Right. You know, so uh, while Rogue is uh, you know has lots of gear on the affordable side, when you end up you know, adding everything up, racks, cables, you name it. You know, that's a big ticket system. So how much are the um, the, the Bowers and Wilkins speakers on their own? The 804 D4 are uh, 12500 Right. A pair. See, I guess, yeah, there's a, there will be some people out there who will go, $12,000 for a pair of speakers, that's madness. What a ripoff, right? <laughs> hmm. But there will also be people clearly quite interested in spending that kind of money on those speakers because this isn't Bowers and Wilkins's first rodeo. They've been making speakers that cost that much and more for decades, right? So they know yeah. there's a market for those speakers. Well, yeah, the 800 series has been around for decades. My father owned an early iteration of you know, the top of the line 800 series back in the day. Mm. Um, and that literally was, I don't, I, gosh, that was so many, so many years ago. But yeah, so this, the, these speakers are the latest incarnation of the 800 series. Mm. And yeah, you know, yeah, the, they have no problem selling them, but selling them in quantity because I say that comfortably because just look at the dealer base for those speakers mm-hmm. and, and every dealer's got a couple pair obviously in-house to demo. So there's, you know, um, the idea that even a $12,000 speaker is beyond the reach of most, uh, you know, just isn't the case. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I've been thinking about this a lot recently and I was actually thinking about, uh, about, in about 2005, I walked into my local hi-fi dealer in Sydney and I bought a pair of Crix Equinox stand mount loudspeakers. I think they cost me about maybe 600 Australian dollars per pair. Mm-hmm. Another time, I, I kind of pointed to another pair and went, what are those? I, I knew nothing, right? Mm. And the dude was like, oh, they're Dyn, they're Dyn Audios. They're made in Denmark. And I, and I said, oh, how much are they? And he went 1,600 Australian dollars. Mm. And back then, I was I was like, I could not imagine myself spending $1,600 on a pair of speakers. But I was very mm-hmm. happy with what, with what I bought. Mm-hmm. I knew that probably the Dyn Audio might be better. Um, but, you know, I was kind of operating at a different 
price level back then. And I went home and I was very happy with my Crix loudspeakers for a good few years. Mm -hmm. But what I have noticed is that very often people seem to be offended, literally offended by stuff that they cannot personally afford. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I've never, I've never felt that way, but I can, I can sort of see where people are coming from, but, but they, their knee jerk reaction is like, well, I don't know, like back then in, you know, during that Crick's transaction, I could have gone $1,600 for a pair of Stan Mount loudspeakers. What a ripoff, right? As yeah. if I had any perception of their value, you know, it just, it would just, it would have been a knee jerk reaction. Yeah. Right. At least, yeah, I would say in my experience, the the outrage doesn't end there. Right. The argument. It's it. You know, a lot of the times I've seen and or heard, you know, whatever the number is, twenty thousand dollars for an amplifier. Oh, that's crazy! You could just get amplifier X, and then mm. the rest of the money away to charity, and that to to me kind of gives at least for me, a fuller picture of the outrage. Mm. You know, it's like, it's not just a price tag. It's, it's a, it's an assumption about even the uh, moral makeup of the people buying, you know, these quote unquote expensive systems. And I've never, ever had those feelings. I just haven't. Yeah. See, I see, I, I see people who are, you know, kind of, who are so upset by expensive things, they also seem to kind of promote the idea that anybody buying <laughs> what they perceive to be crazy expensive gear, we'll come to this in a moment, but like what they perceive to be expensive gear mm. somehow has so much money that they don't have to care about value. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is, I mean, think I've tried to think of it this way, right? So nowadays I would be quite comfortable spending a few grand on a pair of speakers, but obviously 15, 20 years ago, I wasn't. But my mental process is still the same for whatever I'm buying, right? So my kind of, I'll do my sort of market research, if you like, I'll dig into the internet. I mean, it obviously was a lot sketchier, not sketchier, that makes it sound like it was dodgy, but it was a, there wasn't as much information online about Hi-Fi back in 2005 mm. as there is now. But I would still... You know, if I was looking for a four grand pair of speakers, I would still start Googling around, see what's available for four grand, see which things I'd like the look of. But does that mean that I'm shopping at a price point where I don't care about value? No, of course it doesn't. Right. Just because I'm comfortable buying at that value at that point, sorry, at that price point, doesn't mean I've suddenly dispensed with all sort of logic and all care about financial responsibility it just means i'm operating at a different price point and maybe somebody who's 20 years my junior will look at me and just think i'm, I'm crazy you know you're an idiot you're spending four grand a pair of speakers i can only afford 500 you know dollar speakers and that's fine but that was me back then right so right but it, yeah like applying yeah. this I, I think to outlets uh, i would take a step outside of hi-fi okay mm -hmm. and let's just say that yeah, 30 years ago, when I went out to dinner, I would avoid restaurants that cost, for me at the time, an outrageous amount of money, right? Mm. And then as time went on, and I was able to afford to dine at restaurants that 
cost more money, you know, than I used to be able to spend. I didn't say, now that I've got the money, I don't give a shit what the food tastes like. Right. <laughs> you of course you care. Yeah. You expect, you know, as, as you're spending more for the experience to, to whether if it's food, I, I'm expecting a better meal, frankly. Of course I am. If I wasn't going to get a better meal, I wouldn't spend the money. Mm. You know, so. But it seems to me there's almost this like sort of almost childish view out there that if somebody's rich enough to afford, I don't know, meal A or car B, mm. then they're also rich enough not to care about its value. But I don't think that's the case because that assumes that everybody who's shopping at that higher level, which you, you, know, you can't afford, somehow has so much money that I don't care anymore. But I, I just, I think there's still a range of people. Like if we look at, I don't know, let's say, uh, I don't know, 50 grand on a car. And I don't mm -hmm. know anything about cars, but I'm still, if I'm looking at a f to spend 50 grand on a car, I'm going to look at a range of models. I'm not going to look at one and go, oh, this is the one for me. That's it. I'm going to, you know, go and yeah. test drive a few and, you know, do a compare and contrast on a few models. Now, it might be that I'm really stretching myself to afford a 50 grand car. Hmm. Or it might be that I've, I just happen to have 50 grand upstairs in cash and I can just go and spend it tomorrow without a care in the world. And I think there'll be a variety of people, you know, sitting in between those two extremes when they're buying a 50 grand car or a 100 grand car or a $500 car. Mm -hmm. I don't think it matters. There's still a range of financial circumstances shopping at each price point. I mean, obviously, if you're pulling 50 grand a year, you're not going to be looking at a $250,000 car. Well, at least you shouldn't be. <laughs> you want to be financially responsible to those around you. But if you, you know, it's just your money and mm. you can afford to service that loan, then happy days. But it doesn't mean that just because you're buying a quarter of a million dollar car that you're so rich that you don't care about if, well, we don't care about its value and don't care about other possibilities, other ways of spending that 250 grand. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's an uh, assumption from that made in in that point of view that suggests that people who buy these expensive things are because they can afford them they're flippant about the purchase. Yes. Yes. And I definitely I, yeah, that's just simply not the case in my experience in again, you know, yes, with the car analogy, with the food analogy and we could go on and on, you know. Uh, clothes, uh, watches, wine, <laughs> uh, whiskey, bourbon. You know, it seems to me that there are groups of people who, when they're in a position to spend more money, they actually take more care with what it is, with the experience, let's just call mm. it, that I can, you know, cover all those bases of different uh, interests. I think, you know, one of the most common purchases that probably many of us make is a smartphone, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we, many of us buy one. There are so many options to choose from, so many different models at different price points now because smartphones used to sort of top out at 600 bucks and now they're up to 1200 There's, there's a Sony um, camera that's just come out that's going to be 1800 bucks. Mm. So a camera, well, it's, it's, a, it's a phone with a camera or a camera with a phone. Anyway, but like, <laughs> right. you know, we we do a fair amount of due diligence when we're buying a smartphone. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine many of us 
just going, oh, I don't care. Just give me any phone. Like, you know, you want to go, well, am I going to get an Android phone? I'm going to get an iPhone. If it's Android, which one of the 20 possibilities at about mm-hmm. 800 bucks can I buy? Because I've gone through this recently. There is so much information to claw your way through before you really find the phone that might be right for you. And there's no such thing as a test drive. I mean, I guess you can buy one from Amazon and try it and then send it back if you don't particularly mm. like it. I actually mm. did that with a Samsung phone last month. But, um, <laughs> but you know, like it, it was too heavy. Or rather, the weight distribution was really weird. I didn't like that it was mm. very top-heavy and it didn't feel very comfortable in my hand. But mm. there we are. I'm, I'm talking about a quality that's not intrinsic to its use as a, necessarily as a phone, you know, like it's not a sound quality or anything like that. It was just how it felt in my hand. Yeah. So it, it, it's there's a whole range of things we look at when we're buying a phone. And I talk about phones because it's something that everybody can relate to. Mm-hmm. And most people can afford, I say that tentatively because I don't want to come across as a, you know, a white privileged dude. I don't want to come across at all like that. I'm very aware that, you know, I'm lucky to have these devices, but I won't be able to afford these devices. But if let's say, for example, Sony introduced a smartphone that sold for five grand, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say, oh my God, what a ripoff. Cause I don't know. I've got no earthly idea, right? It, just by looking at the price tells me nothing because it could be as good as say Sony's flagship mirrorless camera. Mm. Imagine that. In a, yeah. in a phone. Now, that would be a revelation. But you have to look at, you know, the tech in the phone and what it does to know whether that five grand is good value or not. Right? And then you have to look at what other five grand phones are, are available. And, you know, Apple may have introduced their own mega amazing camera that's also a phone, iPhone model that's also maybe four and a half grand. You, you, you do the, the compare and contrast. Comparisons are fundamental to our value judgment process, I mm-hmm. think. Would you agree yeah. with that? Yeah, and I would add um, on top that, you know, there are many people out and about who also value um, the aesthetics of things, if you yes. will, if that's the proper word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, there are people who are willing to... to in addition to paying for functionality, you know, they're paying for how something looks and feels. Um, and then even in certain situations, um, uh, with even a phone, mm-hmm. uh, kind of the message it gives off. I mean, it's certainly the case with fashion and there are, there have been cases with big fashion houses that put out like some crazy, this was years ago, but they put out like some crazy, you know, customized version of a phone, you mm-hmm. know, that was branded, you know, so, and, and there are people who are willing to pay for the brand. And I do think that gets back into hi-fi because in my experience, that those people who go, wow, you're crazy for spending X, you're just paying for the case, you know, or you're mm. paying so much money for the case, mm-hmm. you know, and it's more obvious with some products than others. Some mm-hmm. products scream industrial design, and you know you're paying for that design. Um, and and for some people, that they're absolutely willing to pay for it. And again, I don't see anything wrong with that. I'm not going to condemn someone because they're like, yeah, I really care about what this thing looks like. Well, it's like those Divi expert amplifiers, you know, the 
the chromed mm. pizza boxes, to use yeah. a crude expression, right? <laughs> is that those things look amazing. And people are going to say, you're, you're, you're just paying for looks. Yeah, damn right I am. Yeah. Because I think it looks fantastic. Yeah. Look absolutely fantastic. And it would be the same with a Phantom as well. The, you know, the kind of active loudspeaker that WLA make. And right. it's the same with a, a BMW car. Yes. Yeah, I care about how it looks. It's, in fact, I care more about the car because a car is more of a sort of look at me purchase than, a, than an amplifier or a DAC, right? Because mm-hmm. you're, you're literally, literally out in the street with it. You're not oh, doing yeah. that with your, you're not carrying your Divial expert into the street going, look at me, look at, look at what I own. <laughs> you're not doing that. But with a car, you know, how it looks is fundamental to your purchase decision. You know, not just how it looks in isolation, but how it looks compared to other cars. Because you might actually, I would, I would guess that most people formulate this a short list of car, cars based upon how they look first. And then you go to the dealer and you poke around and push mm. the seats and poke some buttons and then you take a test drive. I could be wrong. So Michael, let's bring it back to Hi-Fi and let's introduce a hypothetical. So basically a Hi-Fi manufacturer introduces a new DAC, a new DA converter, Mm -hmm. and its price is $50,000. All right. Now, I, I like to think about this in the context of, say, my friendship group and some of my friends back in Australia. Mm. So I've got a couple of friends who would not think twice about dropping 50 grand on a DAC because their income allows them to do so. Like they earn way more than me. Mm. Now, I could take the attitude that they're idiots for spending that much money, <laughs> but who am I to judge when I'm not in their shoes because I don't earn anywhere near as much as they do but equally like i'm more comfortable say at the five grand dac level but i've Mm. also got friends who are not really into hi-fi that much and who would you know balk at spending even 500 bucks on a pair of say i don't know apple airpods max like bluetooth headphones Mm. and would look at my five grand spend on a dac and they would call me an idiot yeah so one man's ceiling is another man's floor, and that is mm. determined by how much you earn, your disposable income, and your priorities. It's not yeah. there is no sort of absolute threshold of where your spend suddenly turns to idiocy. <laughs> right? I mean Right. <clears throat> so there are people that would see the 50 grand DAC and just immediately their knee-jerk reaction would be rip-off. What a rip-off. Rip-off. And that's probably because they're not in the shoes of, say, my friends in Australia who are very wealthy, who could afford that. And it's more, their, their sort of cry of ripoff is really a function of their circumstance or their insecurity with their circumstance, mm. more so than the value within that 50 grand DAC. Because that 50 grand DAC could be, for example, mm. I don't know, let's say it's a hundred times better than a, a five grand DAC. Now that makes it outstanding value relative to <laughs> what you and I would, you know, deal with at the five grand level, right? If it was a hundred mm. times, it sounded a hundred times better if it was really that good. So you'd have to know what this thing sounds like before you could even get close to making a value judgment about it. But there are also some people who would sort of 
take a peek at an internal uh, internals photograph or have a look inside, <coughs> count the components inside and go, well, there's no more than three grams worth of components in there. That's, that's, that's a ripoff. But they do so by cheerfully ignoring all of the, the background that goes into making that product. So like the R&D, the prototyping, so, you know, and then also the diseconomies of scale of buying parts, because when you're making a 50 grand DAC, you're not making that many. You may be making 10, 20, 30. I don't really think you're making that many. It's not like an iPhone where millions are made. So you have diseconomies of scale when it comes to parts purchases. Mm-hmm. And then you've got all the tooling and maybe, maybe the factory that's helping you make the chassis, for example, or a certain part has a minimum order quantity of 300. So you have yes. to stump for that, right? Because MOQs are fairly common at factories, especially if they're you know, being outsourced elsewhere and you're not making everything in-house. And if you are making everything in-house, it's going to be a very, very labor-intensive process. Or the machinery that saves on the labor is going to cost a lot of money. Or you're going to have staff who need salaries and you pay the rent on your factory, right? And you have to pay your staff health care. And, and you, you have, have to pay mar- yourself. <laughs> right. And you have a marketing budget and it just goes on and on and on. So all mm. of the, and, and let's not forget that you have to somehow have a sales channel for this, this product. Cause this right. isn't going to be something you're going to sell to anybody on a 30 day home tri- trial. This is going to go through a dealer network, a distributor network around the world. Mm-hmm. So they have the margins that they have to cover. So within a 50 grand product, there is a lot going on. Well, there's a lot going on with every product. I mean, maybe the margin would be a bit greater, but then again, the risk is greater in trying to sell a 50 grand DAC into the marketplace, right? I don't know. I, I think it is. So, yeah. Yeah. I would suggest it's a different marketplace from a $99 DAC. Right. 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 I mean, a $99 DAC, you know, I, I, I'm comfortable going to Amazon and trying one out. I'm certain, you know, you, I don't even think you can go on Amazon and find a $50,000 deck because the people shopping in that league, I would have to think, you know, want some service attached to this purchase. Mm-hmm. They want to visit. And more than likely, I, I would say also, they're going, they're going to go to their dealer. Mm-hmm. They've, uh, you know, because if they have a $50,000 deck, they're, they're spending multiples of that on the rest of the system in total. And again, you're not yes. going to be buying a hundred thousand dollar pair of speakers from a, a, a big box store or we know this stuff. Mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm. going to be buying them from a dealer who's more than likely going to come to your house and set them up. Mm-hmm. You know, so this, you know, this service attachment um, and a dealer distributor slash dealer network adds X amount of points on top of, what the comp- what the manufacturer needs to make pro- per product, mm-hmm. you know. But all this, yeah, this stuff, all of these things. It's not, it's not, not like hi-fi is the only uh, business that, or industry that works this way. This is the way mm. business in general works. And I, yeah, I mean, I do have a hard time when people want to put this hard ceiling on on hi-fi gear, you know, and say, look, anything above X is a ripoff, no matter what it is. I don't right. care. Well, who are they to decide that? I mean, who yeah. decides where the ceiling is? I mean, if, if there is a ceiling, we have to decide where it is. Now, where do we agree on where it sits? Now, if we've all got different incomes and different purchase priorities, we're never going to agree because it doesn't exist. It agrees 
sorry, it exists for us individually. We have a, probably our own ceiling and we might push just above it if we think it's worthwhile. But generally, our ceiling is not somebody else's. In fact, in many cases, our ceiling is somebody else's floor. And that's the case at every single price point. I mean, granted, there will be fewer people shopping at 50K DAX than are shopping at, I don't know, even $50 DAX. There'll be lots of people shopping there. But mm. it, it doesn't mean, like, I, I just kind of, this sort of moral relativism that gets applied mm -hmm, to pricing, mm -hmm. I find very confusing because, you know, because a lot of people say, oh, you know, well, there's people starving in Africa and it's, you know, it's <laughs> an outrage that people are spending 50 grand on DAX. But you can apply that starving in Africa argument to any discretionary purchase, purchase at any price point. Well, no, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah I'd also throw are... time into the equation and say if you're spending a few hours or more a week ranting and raving about the prices of hi-fi online, you could be volunteering in a soup kitchen. That's right. Yeah. I guess yeah. they call that slacktivism, don't they? No, right. <laughs> they do. Like, you know, ranting on Facebook yeah, about yeah. the injustices of the world. and yeah. Right. You know, but the other side of it, as you're saying that, you know, these voicing this outrage and things oh, number one we can pretty much say it's it's ineffectual because right. these products keep coming out and, and they're con they continue to be sold and companies continue to stay in business selling you know some companies selling just very high priced hi-fi right so but it's it's like you know shouting hmm. at the moon <laughs> or you know I mean, sure, you can voice these opinions, but uh, and we all do. Uh, I certainly have areas where I voice my opinion, but we also have to recognize that opinions are just that. They're, they don't create rules that other people have to live by or even take seriously. <laughs> so, but I, th I think we also have to self-reflect on our opinions and, and maybe think that they make us sound a little bit immature. Maybe my opinion here makes me sound immature. Mm. I'd have to, th I'd have to give that some thought as well. But mm -hmm. just screaming about, you know, five grand, fifty grand, being insane and idiotic for anybody that buys it, and there's a mug born every minute, all that kind of thing, just yes. makes you sound a bit like a man child. <laughs> However, I will say that on the flip side of this coin is we, uh, as people who are privileged enough to be able to talk about these things, have to acknowledge. The 50 grand or five grand or even 500 bucks is a lot of money because it's discretionary spending. And we are all very fortunate to be able to have these things available to us and then be able to afford them. And we shouldn't be glib about, you know, high price points, hmm. just as we shouldn't be flippantly dismissive of them. Like we have to kind of see both sides of that equation, especially as people who, are, you know, cover these things for a living. And I think. There is yeah. a level of angst mm. in the audiophile world about the ever-increasing pricing of Uber high-end gear, and that I can sort of see where it comes from. I think being angsty about it is possibly, I don't know, is it, is it legitimate? I, I guess I'd, I'd rather hear from somebody who's kind of worried about it than somebody who just says, well, it's all a rip-off and all the people that buy it are idiots because mm. they haven't thought about it at all. But the people that are genuinely concerned about this might have a point and i think we should listen to them but it, i think it would need to be a fairly well-formed opinion as to why it's a problem i can i can see it as a problem as it alienates newcomers like if they turn up to a the average hi-fi magazine and all they see is 50 grand acts that's mm -hmm. that's not going to bring anybody new into the world of hi-fi 
but I think most magazines, especially the British magazines, actually, the British print mags, they're very good at covering very affordable stuff. And I think you know, what Hi-Fi doesn't cover that many expensive things. I think you're more likely to see crazy expensive Hi-Fi gear at shows like you've just been to than you would in most of the press. I'm not saying all of them. I would say most of them. Yeah. Well, uh, a couple things. Uh, you know, so a hi-fi show, t- to my mind, is very much like a car show. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, in, you know, I am not a car person. I think I've mentioned this before. I've never been, but I have been to car shows. And let me just say that if I went to a car show, which would happen in New York City, so mm-hmm. I take it or drive there or more, I pay the parking, I pay the entrance fee. And if I walked in and all they had were super budget cars, I'd be very disappointed. Even though I'm not in the market to buy a very expensive cars, but that's why I would go to a car show to mm-hmm. see cars that otherwise I'd have no interaction with. Because you, know, you want would, to see what's possible. Yeah. And also, I enjoy, you know, uh, um, industrial design. And, you know, so, yeah, I, I, w- I do enjoy seeing these things and having the opportunity to be, you know, to see them up close, sit in one, mm. and on and on and on. And I, you know, I, and I've done this in the past. And I've never once thought to myself, you know, the hell with these people and their fancy cars. You know, this is an outrage. They should well, not even be allowed to sell them or make them. You know, we should all be driving Yugos and <laughs> to use like an old whatever, you know, or scooters. It's a bit like driving around the fancy, fancy end of town. Like there's a couple of um, sort of suburbs or the Stadtteiler, which is like areas of the city here hmm. where, where there are just big houses. Yeah. And it, I, I find it fascinating to kind of cycle around them and look at them. And I certainly don't go, what kind of idiot would buy a house like that? You know, because it's not in, it's not even in my, it, it has no relevance to me, right? Like right. a big, uh, what am I going to do with a big, like 10 bedroom house? But I don't begrudge somebody <laughs> like owning one and living in one. Mm. But we seem to be very accepting of that, I think, and accepting of people having different standards of cars. But when it comes to hi fi, there seems to be a lot of angst about, pricing and what people can and can't afford or maybe it's just the distortions of the internet conversation i don't know mm. this is a thing like because as i've said before i see more of this now because i haven't been i haven't been out of the house for like two years so I, <laughs> all i get to see is what people write on the net and i but I, I do see even on my own sort of facebook pages people kind of just getting almost annoyed annoyed by high mm-hmm. pricing but, yeah well i will say that i didn't hear anyone at the show complain mm. about the price of the things at the show. Right. But yeah, you know, but that could have made, you know, I may have been in the wrong place at the wrong time, but most rooms, uh, that I was in th- over the course of the three days, you know, all had an equal amount uh, uh, of traffic. There mm. was one room and this at, at the Capitol audio fest each year, they take out, they do the same room and it's a huge ballroom. It's called the audio company mm-hmm. and it's a huge, uh, well, it's just a, it's an enormous room and every capital audio fest, they show with huge von Schweikert speakers and tons of VAC, uh, 
amplification and maybe esoteric uh, digital. And this year it was a big uh, Kronos uh, turntable. So all told in round numbers, that system is about a million dollars. And that room was hopping all weekend. People were, and yeah, I mean, it's like the car show thing. Uh, you know, you're at this hi-fi show and somebody says, oh, you know what, that system over there. And you could just see it looking through. It's the, the front doors are all glass and the speakers have to be seven or eight foot tall. So you mm-hmm. can you can see all this gear. So you know, you know what you're dealing with when you walk in. Mm. And I don't see any harm to this whatsoever. No, I don't either. You know, it actually reminds me of um, a sort of a little sort of speech I gave at the end of a recent video about how, people who know a lot about hi-fi should be empathetic towards people who don't to newcomers and be understanding that they don't Mm. know as much as you. You I'm talking about the comment section below the video. Yeah. But it also cuts the other way is that if you want, you know, people who are really deep into high-end audio to be patient with you as a newcomer or as somebody who, you know, can only afford a very modest system, you have to sort of return the favor by, you don't have to feel sorry for them. I'm not saying this, but like you have to be understanding of their position that they can afford all this stuff. And it's something that you probably would never afford, you know, in, in the foreseeable future. Hmm. So you have to be empathetic towards people who have more than you. Now I know that goes against the grain of the way that we're told to look at society, maybe, but it doesn't, I mean, we can be angry about the distribution of income in, you know, in a country or around the world. Mm-hmm. We can be annoyed by that, but I think to kind of bring it down to an individual level, go that guy's got a a massive hi-fi and a massive house and a fancy car, and I hate him because of it. <laughs> I think that's childish and immature, yeah. and it's like that's how teenagers think, right? So it, it does also, work both ways. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I also would question how honest that uh, point of view is, and what I mean by that is mm. back in the day when I owned a company we had employees we had a lot of employees over the years and i one of my job functions was to talk to people about their well to to determine their rate of pay when they joined and then to give them raises over time Mm -hmm. and in my years of experience with a lot of people no one ever said to me you know what that's too much i really i want to make less money than what you're offering me (laughs) right that right. never happened. I've never heard of that happening. Uh, and I don't know anyone who's ever taken that position when mm. they go for a job or when they when it comes time for a raise. You know, no, 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 you're just paying me. T- I'm not worth it. I don't want to make that much money. I want to make less money, as a matter of fact. Do me a favor. Please cut my pay because mm-hmm. I just feel guilty about making that much money. No, mm. the opposite's always the case. People want to make as much money as they possibly can. And so I, what I'm getting around to is why should someone who decides to start a hi-fi company be any different? Mm. You know, this idea that, oh, you can't make and sell these expensive products, blah, 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 blah. You know, how people price a product is going to determine their income. Yes. In the end. And so mm. you would begrudge somebody. You know, for, for back to this idea of looking at a parts count cost and then multiplying it out to come to some quote unquote reasonable sale price, this flies in the face of of human nature, at least in the U.S. of A., where everybody is looking to make you know 
as much as they can doing what it is they do. Sure, but you can't possibly know what they're making on individual units because you don't know their cost base. You have no idea. Uh, of course, right. It, right. It's, like a, seen, right. It, it, it's a very who, simplistic yeah. view yeah. At, at how a company operates. And anyone who's ever owned a company understands this, no matter what kind of company it is. You know, what the costs are associated with having a company, with having an office, with having employees, and on and on and on and on. You know, so... I think, the number one thing that people like that would tell you is there is a big difference between having a product and having a business that sells that product. Because, you know, you could probably make one of a you know, 50 grand DAC, but, and it might not sell, you, know, you might not want to sell it for 50 grand, and you might better sell it for 30. But if you want to turn it into a business, then it has to be 50 because of all these other things like distribution channels and Mm-hmm. Maybe you have to make the chassis nicer because you're probably not going to get a one-off beautiful chassis made because it's going to cost you a fortune yes. because you're just having one made. But I wanted to ask you, like, mm. how does how does one review a 50 grand app? Very carefully. No, I'm kidding. Um, again, <laughs> no, back to, th- to my mind, regardless of price, mm. one thing I always try to do is review it within the context of at least one other like product in the ballpark price range, but also within a system that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So at present, I have to say it wouldn't make a hell of a lot of sense for me to review a $50,000 DAC. I mm-hmm. would have to do some work. I would have to get in at least one, ideally two other DACs in that price range and also have a system um, that can support a fifty thousand dollar DAC. If I reviewed a fifty thousand DAC with the the little um, ELAC bookshelf speakers I have, it would be completely useless. End of story. It would be that, embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it would. Yeah. I, in, in, yes. In addition to being useless, <laughs> it, it would show a complete lack of understanding mm. uh, of you know, of essentially how to put together a system and, and the, and the reason I, that goes into it. So yeah, think if you're, if you're, if you're in the market for a 50 grand DAC, you've probably got a fairly large house with a dedicated listening room that's treated with mm-hmm. hundred grand speakers and 50 grand up. And now I'm not saying that this, that everything has to cost proportionally the same, but if they are, if those things are indicators of quality, then yes, I mean, especially as if we follow the rules of how we build a system at the, you know, more affordable end, like if we have some LS50s, which mm-hmm. sell for like 1,300 euros, probably have an amp for up to a grand, and then a DAC for like 500-ish, right? I mean, if right. we just scale those numbers up, that's probably how it would play out for a 50 grand piece, like 100 grand speakers, 50 grand amp, something like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's beyond, beyond reasonable, but whether it's possible for reviewers to do that i don't I, I don't know many kind of high-end hi-fi reviewers on the planet who would be able to do a 50 grand dac proper justice in the in the way that you've just described it i well, having there, yeah. a couple of other 50 grand pieces and having a price appropriate system yeah there's a handful i think of of people who of reviewers who have the experience in the systems mm. where injecting a fifty thousand dollar dac isn't uh out of the ordinary mm. 
you know, because they might have a hundred thousand dollar turntable or you know, whatever, you, you know, on and on and on. So, I mean, I, I, I will say I have started moving, um, to reviewing more expensive products. Mm-hmm. And that, so things like, um, uh, you know, eighteen to twenty thousand dollar integrated amps. Uh-huh. I've, I've already reviewed some. You know, twenty thousand dollars speakers, fifteen thousand dollars speakers. Well, and you know, so I've started to do this, and uh, I approach these reviews the way I pr- approach a review for a, a dongle deck, a ninety nine dollar uh-huh. dongle deck. The same basic approach applies, and I don't feel it necessary to talk about value within the context of the review because it's my feeling that i always list the price at the end of the review along with specifications linked to the manufacturer's site it's a little footer at the bottom of every review you could go look if you want right from the beginning scroll down and if you go oh shit i'm not interested in a fifteen thousand dollar integrated amp you could go on your way Mm. and you know the value in a fifteen thousand dollar integrated amp is going to vary from person to person to person. The value proposition. Yeah, but don't you think also that the the comparisons to the you know the other fifteen grand amplifiers mm. speaks to the value because if if well, sure. you know, let's say the product you're reviewing is better than two other similarly priced amps, then it's good value. If it's significantly worse performing, then it's not so good value, right? So that that's sure. the, that's why I do personally. This is why I do comparisons is to kind of give some sense of what the value proposition is. Uh, yeah, I agree completely. But I also think it's worth pointing out that uh, there are manufacturers out there that prior to coming to market with the product, they do their research. They may even buy X number of other, let's talk about just like, so let's say a DAC. They're thinking mm. of coming out with a $20,000 DAC. They do their homework and go out and buy X number of t- other 20,000 or DACs in the ballpark because yeah. they, they want to know how their DAC competes against other things in the marketplace. This idea, you know, that, uh, you know, this idea that manufacturers operate in the dark, you know, they live in a cave and they, they say to themselves, oh, I just want to make a lot of money, so I'm going to come out with a $20,000 DAC. And they go about their business and, and, and somehow get it out into the marketplace without having any clue how it compares to other things. I think it's mm. a fairly naive notion of how business operates. And hi-fi, like, it's a business, right? It's mm-hmm. worth talking about. I mean, if you're putting out a $20,000 deck in any way, shape, or form that goes through a dealer network, you've invested a couple hundred grand easy just to get the ball rolling. Right, if to not, see what other people are doing and what the standard is. Or what, you know, well, yeah, to have the, the – t- t- and just to produce something. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got to be more than that. So the idea that um, – that yes, because that, that idea is implicit in the in the reaction of like, who the hell buys this stuff, right? Right. And yes. when you, if you're saying that, then you have no clue about clearly who who is buying this stuff because there are people buying this stuff, right? There are, clearly, there are people doing it, and I'm not saying that all of them, you know, go to hi-fi shows or even read magazines. I mean, some people will be just so rich, I'll just go, I'll have one of those and one for my apartment in New York, and just deliver them whenever. 
not everybody's like that, and people will be kind of looking at this these things quite carefully. Especially, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I kind of doubt that people are shopping. Let's say there. Let's say there's there was there's somebody in DC who is seriously considering buying the big Von Schweikert speakers that were on display at Capitol Audio Fest. Mm. I think the odds of them coming to Rockville, Maryland to listen to them are slim to none. I would agree. Yeah. They're just not going to do it. I just don't see it happening. Um, do you think they'll maybe just fly to another state if they can't find the dealer in their state and just go and listen there? Yeah. You know, I think that's probably what they would do, isn't it? Yeah, I do think that. Yeah. So in in Australia, like very expensive gear gets moved around in the background between distributor and prospective buyer. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's never, it doesn't really go to kind of shows or gets, you know, gets reviewed. It just, you know, I'm talking about, you know, thinking of my friends who can afford, you know, big ticket items. Yeah. Just find the distributor and say, can you lend me that for a month? And the distributor will be happy to. Because there's a chance of a sale and then they'll make a few grand on it. Right. So of course they're going to do it. So all of this stuff sort of happens in the background. And it, it can be very big items, like big speakers that turn up in wooden crates, you know, that kind of thing. But it, it does go on. It's just not sold in the same way as, you know, like a five grand DAC or a $500 DAC, which are yeah. more obvious, I think, to most consumers. It's just a different way of doing business, but it doesn't make those products any less... <laughs> I, any less, uh, I, it doesn't diminish their value quotient, right? I guess, I don't know. It just, there are, let's say there's like four or five 50 grand DAX in the world. Mm. If you're, you know, you probably know, if you're shopping at that level, you probably know the distributors of all of them and can phone them up and organize home review, your home evaluation periods. No problem. Right. And I, yeah. Yeah, I would I think, also throw back in the monkey wrench of um, uh, appearance. And what, I, mm-hmm. what I'm thinking of, it doesn't matter who the company was or is, but mm-hmm. it was a company had a DAC. I th- let's just say it was about, um, I think it was about ten or $12,000 DAC. And they made a special edition gold version. It was covered in... Uh, it wasn't like painted gold. It was gold, mm. you know, and it was for the Asian market because mm-hmm. there was real demand there. Now, do we say, and let's say that was $20,000, right? Because mm-hmm. it was gold. And that's the only difference. Mm-hmm. Sonically, there was no difference. Now, do we a say, cosmetic difference, yeah. yeah. Do we say, what a bunch of maroons, <laughs> the people who bought the gold act. They're idiots. They just spent 10 grand on, on a paint job. And it's mm. like, yes, they did. And it's what they wanted. And it's what they bought. So I'm sorry, shut up. Like, who cares what you have to say about what someone just bought? I, I just really, I find it so uh, um, out, of, out of line with reason to feel as if we can shout down people's choices about how they spend their money. Um, you know, and it's, I do. It, it does get me going a bit when, when I'm confronted by that attitude, um, or other attitudes at shows. Do you think it's it's people? You know, like we talked about consumer insecurity and you know people, how much people earn and their sort of lot in life. Do you think it's it's a result of that? 
where people kind of make other people spending their business because they're so unhappy with their own life or their own income level, their ability to afford. I mean, it might even be income. It might be they're having to pay out a huge alimony payment every month and so can't afford what they want. And they're, they're annoyed about that. So they'll want to shout down somebody who spends an extra 10 grand for a cold coating on a DAC. Right. Well, yeah, of course I can't know this, but mm. it, um, it does speak that to that seems to be it? a reasonable um, mm. uh, a, a reasonable um, explanation, mm. you know, for what we're talking about. It's a, such a behavioral, psychological soup, uh, t- to my mind, that is uh, the impetus for that kind of, re- especially outrage, you know, that I'm not qual. I can't, you know. I, I, you know, this, I'm not qualified to, to dig into the, mm. the psychology, but it's certainly, uh, I, you know, in searching for explanations that make sense, that sure rings true to me. Mm. I mean, it doesn't make it, doesn't make it true, but I'm just saying that there are possible factors at play that maybe people haven't thought about. I don't know. I mean, mm. I, I do find the behavioral psychology of hi-fi fascinating, which is, I think, probably my primary <laughs> point of interest outside of the gear yeah. Is to how how people respond to it on a group level, right, or on a mm. in a on a subgroup level, because not everybody responds in this way. Most people just kind of go, "Oh, twenty grand that," and they just go go on go on with their day and don't really think much about it. Which personally, that's kind of what I do. But I right, mean, but it's just again, yeah. But I I really do think we're we're largely dealing with the echoes of of uh, the internet i mean yeah, just probably. imagine you 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 go out on a date too and it's an important date so you go mm-hmm. to a fancier restaurant than you typically would go to mm-hmm. and you're sitting down and you're having a wonderful time the appetizer mm-hmm. you just had was exquisite you're really looking forward to the next course when someone at a, a table two tables over goes oi this place is a ripoff. You're all idiots for eating here. I could go right down the street, get this, you know, what would you do? Same meal for like 50 bucks. That person's insane. You know, that, that, that's it. That's crazy talk. Mm. That's crazy behavior. Didn't you see the prices before you came? (laughs) Didn't you know what you were getting yourself into? And that's my point with reviewing, you know, a $20,000 to grade name. People don't buy it and then say, and by the way, how much does it cost? <laughs> you know, I guess comment sections are lightning rods for that kind of crazy restaurant attendee behavior, right? Sure. People come wading in and express opinions that they would never express face to face. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I guess we we do need to yeah, make it clear that we are, I guess, talking really about the online conversation and not, not what real really life happens in real life. Not, it's not real life. Yeah, that's true. And maybe that's because yeah. I need to get out more, maybe. <laughs> well, and, and largely, you you literally cannot get away with that kind of behavior in many real-world contexts. If you did that in a restaurant, you'd be asked to leave. If you did that at the BMW dealer and tell and stood outside and tried to tell everyone coming in and they would be idiots for to, to w- even walk in and consider buying a BMW when they could drive right down the street and get a Kia... Mm. That person would be removed from the premises, right? That because crazy talk. You know, it's like the guy sitting on the corner in New York City telling you about the end of the world. It's that same feverish uh, 
unreasonableness that we're talking about that is perfectly fine apparently online because <laughs> you know you could mm. it doesn't matter it's you know because i think in real life we manage to filter out the unreasonable people before they've even got more than two or three sentences in or we've yeah. walked away or whatever right yes but online you can't do that so easily because they come in with a comment and you, you're like what so i mean i just refuse to deal with unreasonable people i think it's just it's it's pointless because it just doesn't go anywhere. But I think it is mm. interesting to see these things at play online and in, in some ways address them. I'm not saying this is necessarily a big problem, but I think there is a portion of the, the hi-fi community who are probably not seeing v how value transmutes across all price points. Like it, it, It's not just restricted to their kind of comfort zone and below right well yeah and i would just i would stick the word how it can um exists across the price pressure right. yes i mean there are certainly 200 dollars decks that aren't not every 200 dollars deck is a great value simply because it costs 200 dollars agreed so in every price category you have different you know performance blah 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 mm -hmm. in every price category and just mm. because something costs a lot of money doesn't necessarily make it great value, obviously. You know, yeah, but, but just also, of, hmm. yeah, but just because something is super affordable doesn't Does also it, make it make a great, great great value either. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we review ninety nine dollar dongle decks, and that's why we dozen. compare to <laughs> other ninety nine dollar dongle decks or fifty dollar decks or five yes. grand decks. That's where the comparisons become so important mm -hmm. and I, d I really don't know how value can be determined even even just a hint of it without those comparisons otherwise you're just if you just write you know if you're reviewing something oh i, I think this is great mm. well uh, you're not telling me anything because you're talking about <laughs> an internal reference i could never know well, i don't yes. know you and i don't know what you know and i don't know what you've seen i mean if you get a 50 grand DAC. But that's the only 50 grand DAC you've ever reviewed. And normally you're reviewing a thousand dollar DAC. And then you say, this 50 grand DAC is the best DAC I've ever heard. It's amazing. Hmm. It still doesn't tell us anything. No. Because you, <laughs> you've just stepped where out of your comfort zone. You would expect it to be the best DAC you've ever heard at that kind of price. But it still doesn't tell the person shopping at that 50 grand level much more about it. Yeah. And I, well, it's a, yeah. I'll stick with my restaurant thing. So let's say mm -hmm. you read a restaurant review of mm -hmm. the newest, the newest hottest spot in Berlin. That walking out the door, you're looking at five hundred bucks for two people, mm -hmm. and you read a review, and this guy says, "Oh, I, you know, I ate at this new place, and it is so much better than any other restaurant I've ever eaten at by a huge margin." And then when you get to the bottom, he says, you know, I typically go to Burger King, McDonald's, and the local uh, street vendor mm -hmm. for my food. I mean, to my mind, I would immediately then throw that away as a right. useful review because there's no context. The food here is much better than every Subway restaurant I've ever eaten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because if yeah. you want to assess like how good that restaurant is, you want to go to a couple of other ones that – you know, similar, similarly priced for two people. Yeah, and the see you get there. was much better than any chicken McNugget meal I've ever had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Michael, I think on that note, we should we should uh, draw things to a close. I think we've go. gone a bit rambly this time. Yeah, um, and I'm hungry too, so I'm going to go get some uh, chicken nuggets. nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you once again for being being a, a willing victim of you know my podcast guestery. Yeah, it's and, my pleasure. Um, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. All right, cheers. You have been listening to me, John Darko, and Twittering Machines is Michael Lavonia. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston and music came from Ben Pitt.